what was like the, oh hey soul sister that's right that was a big song when i was in high school hey soul no, sister I'm gonna, I'm gonna is that mr mr on stereo i'm gonna i'm gonna come to australia and beat the shit out of you <laughs> i'm gonna robert chris gal you your ass motherfucker <laughs> There's a Chinese food place called Mission Chinese Food in New York, uh, which has a Twin Peaks themed bathroom. So. <laughs> <laughs> I hope this place is still. There's open. no other references to any other pop culture. It's just a Twin Peaks themed bathroom. I think so. I mean, that is kind of the way to do it because then it's more surreal. Yeah, you're just like, oh, it's just a bar, and then Twin Peaks. Especially if you like, if if you got drunk and you were disoriented, and then you stumble in there. I went to a bar in, in Berlin that was called, I think it was called just the Black Lodge. Um, I remember that. Did I did I tell you about the other funny part of this story? Which is when I got home from uh, from Berlin, I was talking to my dad, and I was like, oh yeah, I went to this cool bar that was like based off this uh, this you know show like Twin Peaks, and he's like, oh that's cool, that's cool. And then like a couple of days later, he comes to me and he says, did you know that like that's like a chain? And I was like, what? He was like, yeah, there's like Twin Peaks bars all over the place. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then I realized he was talking about a uh, a um, booby bar by, with the same name. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I went to, I went to, this is the worst thing. I think I was in LA or something. Mm. And I went to a, a pop-up bar that was Stranger Things themed. Oh my God. <laughs> Did you choose to go to this place? Uh, it was more happenstance that I walked past it mm. while I was just wandering around. I didn't have much to do. I think maybe it was Chicago or LA. I can't really remember. And uh, I was just like, maybe I'll have a look at this, like what a pop-up bar is. And it was just awful. It's one of the worst experiences. Is, did you buy a, a, a Stranger Things uh, drink? I know. I just bought a beer or something. Nah, that's and lame. just stood there awkwardly amongst all these people. It was horrible. Wake me up inside. Did you watch Stranger Things? I watched the first series. Never I tried it. to watch the second. I couldn't get through the first episode of it, and I was like, "Yeah, I think I think that's the extent of how much I care about this." I mean, neither of us really grew up in the '80s per se. But yeah, but I, I guess I guess you're my more of a target audience than I am. My experience as a kid, or especially like that that era of sort of VHS rentals, yeah. was very much beholden to the same sort of cultural touchstones. So I was watching the same films. Wake me up inside. I mean, not quite the same. I think it would be different if, if you were like a kid when E.T. came out and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Which I was not. I remember I watched uh, E.T. at a church screening <laughs> hmm. where they, we, they would occasionally play movies. Most of them were like Veggie Tales movies, but uh, once they played, uh, they played E.T., so interesting what do you say veggie tales yeah do you not know, know what that is doesn't ring a bell uh it's a, a series of 3d animated movies and, and tv shows right yeah uh, that are a were made really cheaply so they're horrifying and b are about a series of anamorphic anthropomorphic uh vegetables which uh have the qual uh, have two qualities one they're anthropomorphic and two, they worship Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they would produce various versions of Bible stories with the Betty Tales in them. They don't, like, question their creator and, like, why did you make me? <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's, you know, intended for children, so I don't know. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I watched Betty Tales a lot when I was a kid. I, I just sent I just you an image of the Betty Tales, which you should check out. I will look at it now. <laughs> It looks great. So if you want to know why I'm the way I am, 
Look no further than VeggieTales. And apparently they're developing a new movie, uh, which was just announced in 2019, so... Well, there's been video game uh, VeggieTales. Uh, there's been video games based on VeggieTales. And over 45 musical albums. Wow. That's a lot. That is a lot. That's a lot of Christian <laughs> pop propaganda. It's certainly more albums that I've released. That's like Hillsong. What is that? It's a modern Christian movement that started in Australia, but has a lot of famous American fans. Like whom? Uh, the Kardashians. Chris Pratt, famously. Oh. Remember when, Oh, uh, yeah. What's, what's her name was calling it out? No, I don't Ellen know. Page. Oh, yes, Ellen Page. The reason she was calling it out was specifically to do with uh, anti-LGBT policies of the church mm. and practices. But um, the funny story is, so it was founded by a New Zealander who immigrated to Australia. So Australia, So the church did start in Australia. Um, and it turned out that the father of the founder mm -hmm. uh, was a pedophile, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when the founder discovered this, uh -huh. uh, did he inform the police? No, he did not. So his, his father was a pastor, maybe not within the same church specifically, but he was a pastor at any rate. So he arranged for his retirement, his comfortable retirement, mind you, mm -hmm. financially secure retirement. As for the victim, one of the victims at least, because there was more than one, but the victim that was known to him at the time, he attempted to buy his silence. Uh, by, <laughs> That's very Christian, my friend. Um, by arranging to meet him at a McDonald's, <laughs> getting his signature on a napkin and promising him <laughs> money in return. Um, and then the, the, uh, the guy who was promised the money uh -huh. um, didn't receive it. So he had to like follow them up and uh, allegedly he phoned the founder again. Mm -hmm. And the founder snapped at him and said, it's your fault. You tempted my father. And then finally, when this all came out, he was officially censured by a royal commission in Australia wow. for failing to report his father's crimes. Oh, he sounds like a bad guy. Yeah, bad guy. Chris Pratt loves him. So, uh, what, are we, what are we talking about podcast today? Uh, oh, welcome, gang, to Project Plus. Plus. I'm Hunter, you're Hugh. Uh, 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 we're talking about two movies today. One called uh, Blind Country, one called... It's a, it's a woman special. That's what, the, that's what this, is, this is, right? Yeah, for special women. Yeah. Like, the people who listen to this podcast. Um, so, we're talking about two movies. Uh, Amy Poehler's Blind Country and a <laughs> video. It's a love witch. That's a reference to our failed attempt at recording this earlier. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting a sense of deja vu here. Can you maybe explain that for the listener? Well, and if um, we sound occasionally bored, we're talking about <laughs> or, or incredibly digressive. I mean, that may be, be in part because of the films themselves. We'll get to that. Um, but it also may be due to... The fact that we had tried to record this earlier, but there's some strange computer error which uh, led to my Peter not saving the audio file, and we lost that episode, unfortunately. At least my portion of it. So, yeah, so we did record the entire episode... It wasn't just like we tried and like there were some issues getting started. If you if you uh, hop on our Patreon, you can pay five dollars a month and receive the complete uncensored uh, Hugh Hamilton Love Witch and Wine Country tape. Yes. Uh, okay, so uh, fucking Wine Country and the Love Witch. Uh, let's start with let's start with the the Love Witch. The no, let's start with the other one. What do you want to start with? I don't care. Uh, let's start with the Love Witch. Let's be being bad. Treat women like shit and shit. Enter the love witch. The love witch. 
She's the witch. That means Min's gonna be sad. Thanks, Love Witch. Annabella's second feature, 2016's The Love Witch, adopts the style of Technicolor melodramas and the exploitation cinema of the 60s and 70s in a rapturous yet pointed celebration of form. Shot on 35mm film and utilising old-fashioned studio lighting techniques, the story concerns a young woman, Elaine, who moves to a new town following the dissolution of her marriage and the mysterious death of her ex-husband. A practising witch, Elaine is determined to find a man who will love her as she desires to be loved. And to this end, she begins casting wild love spells on potential mates, the first of whom experiences such an overwhelming surge of emotion that he suffers a fatal heart attack shortly thereafter. After the coital embrace. The local police department subsequently begin an investigation and a handsome officer named Griff enters Elaine's deadly orbit. And then some other stuff happens and it ends. Now, although the film specifically evokes exploitation films, particularly uh, Russ Meyer and Italian giallo films, that similarity was not by design per se, but rather the result of Billa attempting to recreate the feel of lavish Technicolor productions on limited means, which is exactly what many of those exploitation films were doing. Other inspirations include uh, Jacques Demy, whose film Donkey Skin, or as we, as we say in French, say it with me, was a reference point for this film's medieval wedding sequence. Now, Hunter. That's me. Uh, did you like it? Yeah, it was okay. <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you think you announced for? Well, um, like I said last time, which I probably shouldn't say. Yeah, no, no. So just, just take that again. So personally for me, the prospect of watching a film that so determinedly attempts to recreate the aesthetic of a prior era rather than, say, evoke it in a more modern context, um, is not especially appealing. And certainly when this film begins, it seems like it will merely be a stylistic exercise and a rather strained one at that. But I think what allows this film to transcend that potential limitation is its perspective. So rather than the limited, generally sexist portrayal of uh, femininity by male directors of the 50s and 60s. We have an actual female perspective. And I do think that goes some way to justifying this film's form. Putting it in so specific a context, one that recreates this bygone aesthetic, actually strengthens its implicit critique of the male gaze because it forces us to experience this familiar mode of cinema in an entirely new way. Jesus Christ, why did I write that? You're embarrassing, buddy. So, I do like that, that... that Biller is kind of recontextualizing the, the femme fatale trope by centering the film on the femme fatale figure and not merely positioning her as like a dangerous lure for the male protagonists. Um, and also by literalizing the idea of men falling under her spell because she's like a, an actual witch. So um, it, it's, it's shifting that familiar type story, but making it about her and her desire and her power. And ultimately, it's the men who are dominated and weakened and even destroyed by her fantasies, not the other way around. So I do appreciate that type of stuff. And there's this uh, point in the movie where this sleazy male witch delivers a monologue about female sexual repression. 
and about how women should assert their sexuality in order to seduce and control men and address the power imbalance that way. But I think it's kind of pointed that Billa sets this sequence in a strip club. A brouette. With a bunch of men animalistically grunting and cheering at a, at a raunchy, yes, burlesque act. Is that good? And it emphasizes the, the kind of fundamental contradiction of trying to achieve liberation by subscribing to a male-focused form of sexual expression by essentially becoming a male sexual fantasy. You know, like the sleazy witch guy who delivers this line is not asserting that women should be free to express their own sexual desires, whatever they may be. And this is something that Billa explored uh, to a greater extent in her previous feature, Fever, which, yes, I watched in preparation for this episode. Wow. So I will get to that as well. Are you fucking came prepared? That's right. Um, And this film also addresses or perhaps parodies the notion that heterosexual men and women are inherently incompatible by reducing male and female desire to crude elemental archetypes. So we have the female fantasy of this mythic true love versus this base male sexual desire, essentially. As as, uh, epitomized by this sound I'm about to make. (laughs) Perfect. And uh, to be honest, I'm not exactly sure what Biller is trying to say by doing this, Um, unless she literally means heterosexual men and women are incompatible. Um, And it seemed to muddle some of the ideas the film was playing with. I don't know, I didn't quite get a coherent message by the end of this film. Neither did I. Whereas I will say I I did with Fever, and I think Fever is stronger in that way. But nonetheless, given its budget and limited crew, I think it's a commendable technical achievement. So in addition to writing, directing, editing, production designing, and scoring the film, Billa designed and constructed all the costumes by hand during the film's lengthy pre-production period. I think there's some pleasure to be had in... Uh, the design of this film and the attention to detail especially the the lighting and the cinematography and also the casting and I think I think I particularly enjoyed the way she captured uh, that sort of 70s phenotype yeah. by casting directors of the time a lot of these people look like they could be in a 70s film so I appreciated that 60s or 70s but it, it is certainly too long yeah and I do wish this film would have hewn a little closer to what it's taking inspiration from, because most of those films didn't go to the full two hours. They're probably more like 90 minutes. Yeah. And while I think it's fine that the acting is, like, intentionally stiff and mannered, um, sometimes it feels too affected or it comes across like an amateur exercise more than it does a clever homage or recreation. So sometimes it just feels a bit stilted and awkward. <sighs> yeah, that's it. that's it. Your turn. Yeah, I don't really know if I have much else to say, but uh, just to repeat the things that you just said. So, okay, repeat them. I'll send you a copy. Uh, okay, please do. But yeah, I think I think everything you just said, but I didn't like the film as much as you did to yourself. And I just thought it was a little boring overall. Now, one thing that you said last time mm-hmm. that uh, you should say again. Oh, please remind me. <laughs> Well, something about you said it felt a little bit like it was... Uh, I can't remember exactly how you said it, but you, you, you said you could kind of feel the theory behind it. Like oh, the yeah. The film theory. Oh, stuff. yeah. It, it, it feels sort of like a textbook exercise more than an actual movie. Hmm. They kind of chafe against, uh, I think. I, I do agree that that does 
uh, hampered a little bit. I just feel like there's, you know, I mean, it's there are there are plenty of films that have been made like theory first. I mean, it's like a you know like a philosophical novel, you know, but uh, I feel like it kind of undercuts some of the visual pleasure things that she's going for, or at least seems to be going for it as well, you know. I think it's a tricky balance to get that right. I don't know if it, it quite nails it. I was actually reading her blog as well in preparation for this episode. She does write extensively about that type of stuff. I read some of her posts that I thought were a little questionable, but whatever. You know, divorcing the art from the artist and all that. <laughs> Didn't read that one. I read one she wrote about, which I do kind of agree with some of the points of, uh, where she's she's saying that the the label feminism or feminist to films is frequently overused uh, to the point where it kind of saps it of any inherent meaning and becomes sort of like this default way of avoiding talking about some issues that may have describing things that have been they're centered around man yeah sure sure um so that, i think that was valid and sometimes i fall into that trap when, yeah. just when just because the film has been made by a woman and isn't isn't misogynistic it's like it's feminist <laughs> no but i mean what is you know you have to think about what do you mean by feminist in that context right well her her critique largely centered around the idea that if you label a film feminist, the meaning should be that the film is actually promoting a feminist agenda to some degree, not just the fact that it has a non-negative portrayal of women. Anyway, do you have anything else to say about The the Love Witch? Yeah, I just, uh, I don't like the, as, as you say, except for some exceptions, I don't really care for the pastiche mode that much. Um, and I don't really think this is like that successful in making me feel... Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's okay. <laughs> is, that, is that good? <laughs> you had two guys this. <laughs> Keep talking. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I just didn't really feel that much for this movie. It kind of just like passed in front of me. I'm kind of finding it hard to articulate what I thought about it because it was just sort of like, okay. Perfect quote. I'll put that on the <laughs> on the head, <laughs> header of the episode. <laughs> it was just like, okay. <laughs> it's like, you know... Your favorite sitcom. <laughs> it was fine. It's like it was like yeah. I was like it was like yeah. It's just a film I didn't feel anything about. I, that's how I felt about it. Is that better? But not feeling is a type of feeling. Yeah, whatever. Interrogate why you didn't feel. I just I suggested why because I don't like the text for equality. Okay. <laughs> I thought it was long and boring. Long and boring. All right, fair enough. We're getting somewhere. <laughs> why don't you Doug, go for me? <laughs> Um, all right, shall I talk about Viva while we're on the topic? No. We're going to talk about the Love Witch for another 50 minutes. All right. <laughs> just satisfy your fucking desires. Fine, fine. Yeah, I just feel like if you, if you want to make a movie that's, like, supposedly desiring to go feminist, as you say, like, it's kind of it's kind of a flaw that, it, it as as we kind of discussed, it, it, it seems kind of incoherent about what it's really trying to get at, right? Oh, no, no, but she's not saying that she's making feminist films. Okay, well, fair enough. I think she was. I think she was probably annoyed because some of her films had been like labeled feminist as well. Maybe. Maybe. So she wasn't saying that I'm. I'm the one making dogmatic feminist texts. But I feel like the. I feel like the implication of that is like, oh, this is like the negative example of what I'm doing correctly, right? No, no, that's not what I got from reading her piece, which I didn't read very closely, <laughs> <laughs> and maybe like poorly paraphrasing. You're a dumb shit. But I don't think like I don't think what she's trying to do is 
push a feminist agenda. Like, no. I mean, like, as in, like, it's not supposed to be a polemic or anything. I mean, you can, by virtue of the fact that of, of its perspective and who's making it and what she's trying to do, um, you can talk about feminism, of course, and stuff like that. But uh, what she's actually said in an interview was something just like she's she was just sick of the male gaze. And she put it in those words exactly. And she just wanted to present the alternative. Yeah, we're all sick of the male gaze. And that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, this is any less of any less as a pure artwork as opposed to polemic than what she's reacting against. It just is what it is. Mm. It is what it is. That's all you have to say. Is that it? It just is what it is. It is what it is. That's as mule- that is as mealy mouth and incoherent as anything that I said, buddy. Whatever you say about the love witch, you have to concede that it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> it is the love witch. Yes. Yeah, I accept that. <laughs> so, so while you did have issues, you do concede. agree with me I will that concede. 2016's The Love Witch is what it is. It is, though. I just, I was kind of like, I don't know, I just, it, it kind of, um, it's not a little pointless to me, I guess, at the end. Pointless, I guess, at the end. In what way? This didn't really add up to anything for me. Okay. And not that I necessarily, but I feel like there are plenty of films that I don't like that are, you know, or I do like that are incoherent or don't have, like, uh, strict political doctrinaire messages that they're pushing forward, you know, or coherent themes. You mean films directed by men? Yeah, exactly. Like, all films directed <laughs> by men, for instance. <laughs> um, no, I just... I'm not saying that, like, I need something that's, like, coherent and and propagandistic. Is I found that the pieces themselves were compelling enough for me to fully enjoy this film as well. So, mm. maybe if it had been a little more polemical, I would have enjoyed it more, you know? Interesting. Yeah, I do think, I do think kind of the... That I agree with you that some of the, the stilted acting is kind of... It's like almost like a little too perfect of what she's going for, you know what I mean? I would say it's almost not perfect enough. Mm. It feels too affected. And there's probably a way to make it feel less affected. Yeah, but I'm not really sure how... Maybe like letting some improv or something into it as well. But maybe not. No, I don't think so. Uh, I think it's really... It's, it's very tricky because the style of acting you're imitating is affected. It's more affected than we're used to. Yeah. It doesn't feel it doesn't feel as self conscious, but that I mean it's also the context of what you know she's putting forward in this, which is like a a film that's you know pretty badly like postmodern in some way, right? Yeah. So like you know you come into it with the expectation that it's going to be not not non genuine, but it's it's deliberately you know utilizing certain styles as opposed to like using something like organically, you know. Hmm. Whatever that means. Is what it is. <laughs> 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 now, now, who who needs to explain this out now, you stupid motherfucker? Uh, that's that should be our new <laughs> rhetorical catchphrase at the end of every movie. Every, every, every movie and um, every single goddamn bonus feature as well. But I'll, I'll watch like Beyond the Valley and the Dolls, and there's something that feels like you know it's obviously like heightened and and grotesque, but it feels more genuine than than this movie feels. You know, not saying that her intentions were genuine, but just the way that it. Just specifically, are we seeing a movie that is uses the style in the time that we live in now? It's just automatically going to seem sort of ironic, right? Yeah. So I mean, it's not necessarily a fault of the film itself, but I can't, that that sort of tripped me up. The other thing was like, I mean, she's also talked about the fact that when she was in film school, 
And I, I can't remember if, if she was actually in film school. I'm assuming she was, because there's like a number of shorts before this, as, as well as Viva and yeah. stuff. So some sort of background there. And I, I think she was, um, she did try and resist at first the style that she's now using with these features. <laughs> uh, here's, here's an important uh, detail. She is dating someone named Robert Green, who is not the documentary filmmaker. He's directed stuff like Brisby 17 or Kate Plays Christine. But is in fact uh, American author who's written such books as The 48 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction, The 33 Strategies of War, and The 50th Law uh, with rapper 50 Cent. <laughs> but if I remember correctly, The Art of Seduction is one of like the, uh, um, you know, the, the major texts the, let's say the Old Testament of the uh, pickup artist community. So, mm. and Green considers himself a reformed rake. One of the types of seducers mentioned in the book. It states that he uses the book's techniques to attract his current girlfriend. Crikey! I don't know about this. I think we've complicated this discussion somewhat. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. So maybe, maybe, Hugh, in fact, uh, that the speech given by the creepy man was entirely her point of view. <laughs> <laughs> it was verbatim <laughs> from Peter Green or whatever his name Robert was. Robert Green. Robert Green. Peter Green's yeah. from Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> um, maybe I'll read that text during the lengthy recovery period after my facial surgery. <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh, you're, you're a itself. Yeah. He wants to be a Chad. I'm going to strengthen my brow. <laughs> You're a good, beautiful boy. You know, I think we had a better discussion this time about the Love Witch than we did last time. Yeah. So maybe we should do every episode twice. <laughs> she talked about the fact that when she was coming up as a filmmaker, she sort of felt this pressure to conform to a particular stylistic mode, which is mm-hmm. more of a realistic modern mode. It's like, if I can make an analogy, it's like Oshima pushing against the confines of social realism in his films post A Street of Love and Hope. Yes. And um, it took it took her some time to sort of embrace the fact that, no, this is the mode that I like working mm-hmm. in and this is this, this is my style. I, this is the things I love and this is what I want to recreate and this is what I want to say. So. This is who I am. It is what it is. Is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, now tell me, tell me about fucking Viva. I'll tell you about Viva, yeah. So in many ways the same elements are at play in, in her first film, Viva. We have a very deliberate attempt to recreate an outdated aesthetic. In this case, I would say like 70s skin flicks mm. um, with some elements of other era staples like soap operas, sitcoms and advertorials. Uh-huh. Now, although like this takes the form of a sex comedy of some description, I actually think it's a, a much darker film than The Love Witch. Mm. And also, as I said, its overall message is less ambiguous and more coherent. Mm-hmm. So maybe I would enjoy this one more. You would not. <laughs> oh, why do you say that? <laughs> well, I guess I guess you'll detail why. So it suffers from the same pacing issues. In fact, it's the same length, yeah, distressingly yeah. enough. Um, and it has uh, that low-budget stiltedness that I mentioned, even allowing for its deliberately affected star, which here is even more affected because she's trying to capture the bad acting of, like, 70s skin flicks and advertorials. I was just talking about this in reference to the movie Tusk. (laughs) Probably not the same thing exactly, but in a way it is. Have you seen the movie Tusk? No. But uh, 
I was saying the reason that Tusk doesn't appeal to me is it's it's something that's like trying to recreate like a Gonzo horror movie, right? Yeah, and that's why I think it's dumb and and sounds awful. So maybe I just don't like postmodern things. Maybe we should watch Tusk. No, let's do a Kevin Smith special when uh the Jay and Silent Bob reboot comes out. Have you did you have you seen the original one? Yeah, I saw it at the movies. Oh, it's so fucking bad. It's like the most nothing thing I've seen in my entire life. It's, it, it, it definitely warrants being seen on the big screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so do most uh, Kevin Smith movies. He's, he's well, well-known he's one of the, visual... the primary visual stylists yeah. of our age. He, he has a maximalist style, which makes full use of the technology of the big screen. Yeah, you could you could turn off the sound and enjoy yeah. it just as much, <laughs> if not more. He's like, he's, it's, like the, it's like the prequels in that way. <laughs> Why is it George Lucas' big war movies? <laughs> Why does he just, like, self-finance them? He said he was going to. <laughs> no, he is... said he was going to make his experimental little films, and I, and I know we, he we won't. Need to, we need to make a, We need to, like, hold celebrities to account. We need to... Pete Townsend to publish his child porn book. George Lucas needs to make small fucking films. What the hell? He said they were experimental and no one's going to like them. I'm like, yes, make <laughs> them, but he won't. He's not going to do it. Maybe he's just filming them as we speak. I would be, like extremely surprised if he followed through yeah me too uh anyway so this film i I admire viva for the way it comes to feel like an existential nightmare (laughs) through its central character played by billa herself so it's because it's about this like housewife who goes on this journey of self-discovery through the sexual revolution and stuff right Uh Yeah, the world she enters turns out to be as restrictive and limiting as her domestic experience. And in fact... That sounds interesting to me. In fact, she outright gets raped multiple times over the course of the film. True to those shitty skin flicks. The way it occurs in this self-consciously artificial world, right? Mm -hmm. Making manifest the implied sexual assault of skin flicks and softcore flicks of the era. And the way it goes like hand-in-hand with that grubby 70s aesthetic kind of makes it all the more disturbing because it doesn't yeah. feel out of place. Yeah. It just feels like it is part of that culture. Yeah, yeah. And um, as with The Love Witch, it, it kind of becomes a, a critique of sexual liberation via becoming a male fantasy, essentially. Yeah. And how that can, you know, how the idea of sexual liberation can curdle into something sinister. Yeah, yeah. That one, that one actually sounds interesting to me. So maybe I'll have to watch that. Yeah, so that that stuff was interesting. It's not, it, I don't think it's a more rewarding ex- vi- uh, uh, aesthetic experience to watch if you're just talking about that on a formal level. But there are some inspired moments. Um, and, and sometimes she kind of twists the tropes of the, the time towards the grotesque, which mm-hmm. I enjoyed. Yeah, me too. Like the part that I like the most in... Uh, the Love Witch. The Love Witch is, is where it gets really grotesque, so... <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a scene in this in which... Uh, Villa's character called Barbie until she renames herself Viva mm-hmm. is getting a haircut from this uh, self-consciously camp hairdresser mm-hmm. and uh, a neighbour comes over to borrow a cup of sugar and then he asks if he can watch her having a haircut and he's sort of just sitting there looking at her suggestively and eating sugar from his cup and sort of licking his fingers and <laughs> grabbing his groin and that kind of goes on for a while. That was kind of enjoyable. <laughs> Uh-huh. But um, it's quite disturbing, I think, overall. Yeah, well, maybe I'll watch it. But it just doesn't feel like that's, again, kind of like The Love Witch. There are interesting stuff if you pick it apart and look at it as, as theory. But it's not that enjoyable as, as a film or successful as a whole, no. I don't think. It, it does make me encouraged 
towards her career trajectory, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's, it'll be interesting to see what she makes, if she makes anything else. Her next film is A Bluebeard Story. Mm. All right, so uh, that's that's Love Witch. Now shall we move on to a brief discussion of wine country? Wine country Just a bunch of gals in wine country We'll wear the finest bows and drink and eat and play Wine Country, colon, six friends, a gaggle of gals galvanized into a group by gangrious, gainful employment, arrive in paradise. They are Amy Poehler, Rachel Dratch, Anna Gastrayer, Maya Rudolph, Paula Pell, and Emily Spevy. Oh wait, I'm sorry, I meant Abby, Rebecca, Catherine, Naomi, Val, and Ginny. And they have come to Wine Country in honor of Rebecca's 50th birthday, sequestering themselves in a miniature manse located among the rolling hills and postcard-perfect sunsets. The group settles in for a relaxing escape from the day-to-day drudgery of which modern life is so fully composed. But it seems all is not well in wine country, as each of these films can't seem to fully abandon their petty problems and give themselves over to the hedonistic demands of Dionysus. No, they must bicker and joke and confront themselves and their fellow women. Now, Hugh, though nominally a comedy, wine country is predicated on a hotbed of emotional pain an unresolved conflict. Did you feel that this uh, Amy Poehler, who this is her directorial debut, directed vehicle, earned its push towards melodrama? Or was the film simply a barrel of laughs? Or was it neither? That's what we'll discover when we turned the patented Project A-plus critical gaze to 2019's Wine Country. All right. Wine country. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we can uh, do real quick, right? Oh, no, I want to spend a couple of hours on this one. Okay, okay. There's a lot to dig in here today. All right, so let's let's contextualize this a little bit, and uh, and say that even in 2019, uh-huh. I think we both agree there are too few female-led productions of this scale and bigger scales, and certainly too few comedies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, there are definitely more than there were, and it does seem to be going in the right direction, but we should be at least, you know, we should at least be at parity, right? So there's an extent to which this film exists in opposition to the type of lazy bro comedies that still proliferate. You know, a belated antidote to the grown-ups franchise, if you will. However, it seems like maybe the producers of this film, the powers that be that put it together, thought it would work by virtue of its pedigree alone. That by throwing Amy Poehler, Maya Rudolph, Paula Pell, and other talented women together, mixing in some nice wine and some nice scenery, the result would be instant charm and hilarity. Certainly more than your average bro comedy of the same ilk. And okay, there's some truth to that. I think this is inherently more interesting and enjoyable than a film about a bunch of guys going on a bender in wine country such as that film you found. With It was a documentary short. But I do think that despite the fact that it is, it is welcome to see this kind of thing, this felt way too thin to me. Yeah. It really just felt like a grossly extended uh, TV episode of some ensemble comedy. The, like the premise feels like, you know, let's mix it up from the usual office environs of this sitcom 
and have all the characters go on like a trip at wine country and have some little yeah, you know, yeah, funny yeah. antics there, blah, blah, blah. But extended across however long this film was, which was too long. <laughs> so, so ladies, ladies, if we could just offer you a piece of advice. Just cut it short next time. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's all that needs to be said on these two female-led <laughs> projects. Let's move on. No, no. Yeah, whatever. It's it's not good. I, I didn't find but too much to be enjoyed here. It's just very bland. I think we should mention that that uh, in the in the space between the first attempt at recording this episode and recording this attempt, yeah, I did discover some extra things about this film. Oh, discover! One of which was the fact that this was actually based on a real trip that many of these people <laughs> actually took. Wait, you, you don't say? <laughs> I didn't know that initially. I just I just assumed this reminded me a lot of. Those movies that Adam Sandler makes where he just goes to, like, you know, whatever, like, grown ups, where he goes to, like, I don't know, a lake house and just makes a movie there with his friends. And the raison d'etre of the movie seems to be, we want to have a vacation here, so let's make a movie here. Yeah, yeah, like, like, but that's the, that's the idea that it exists as a pretext for them to just enjoy the, the holiday. The wine. Whereas um, they separately had this experience. Mm. And this film is, like, an, uh, an attempt to recreate that. Would you say it successfully recreated it? Well, I don't know what I wasn't there. <laughs> you so. weren't there. <laughs> okay, so what did you make of the moment where Paula Pearl gifts everybody dildos dressed as dildo Santa or, or whatever it was? Uh, I thought it was a little strange, but whatever. <laughs> I would say it was. I, I not that it was necessarily. It made me laugh or anything, but it didn't make you. I thought laugh. that was one of the better moments of the film, maybe. It was, like, it stood out a little bit yeah. in context. It's definitely more interesting. Than, it, it feels, like, uh, dangerous in a way that some of the most of the other movie doesn't. Yeah. Not dangerous, per se, but it, it's, like, a f- part that acknowledges, like, sexuality in any way. I guess she has sex with Jason Sportsman, but it's, like, completely uh, washed over, so. Wait, you wanted to see Jason Sportsman's ass thrusting. I wanted, to see, <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted it to be, I wanted it to be a, a view of her... The camera positioned where her body would be in missionary position, right? Right. Okay. And I, I wanted Jason's force would be thrusting into the general direction of the camera. That's what I wanted. Um, but anyway, that moment, the dildo scene, uh-huh. uh, was a recreation of something that Paula Pell actually did. Uh-huh. To- See, I can imagine that being funnier if it happened in real life. Yeah, some if not all of these women. But not so much in the the context of the movie. <laughs> but I, I think this is also one of the reasons why it doesn't quite work. Because they're redoing bits of from real life. Yeah, I think if they went for broke with that premise, yeah, it might have been interesting or at least more admirable, even if it still failed. And they, if they just tried to recreate that experience cinematically. But the the I think the thing that that um, lets this down something that you alluded to in your intro is the attempt to, to give everyone a, a, a specific emotional arc. Yeah. That feels kind of pat and forced. It and does. again, sitcom-ish, or at least televisual yeah, or something. For sure. Like, it's not just a hangout film, right? And maybe it would have been better that way, not that it would have been any less lazy and would have probably seemed more lazy, but the, the, the attempt at sort of uh, drama made it worse yeah, yeah. for me. And that being said, I didn't like the comedy particularly much yeah. either, so I don't know. Well, did you find any parts that were especially uh, inducing of a rictus? 
Um, so are you asking me what, what bits I found funny? What were the bits that you found funny? Enumerate them, please. The only other bit that comes to mind, in addition to the aforementioned dildo scene, was uh, a scene in which Maya Rudolph and uh, someone else who I can't remember, but possibly the co-writer of the film. Yeah, I believe it is uh, Emily Spevy. Um, they're having a conversation in the hot tub, and they're talking about Prince. Yeah. So that got my attention. <laughs> <laughs> That's it? Yep. What about you? I like the part where Maya Rudolph is doing, like, a swing blade voice. I thought that was funny. She's always good value. I mean, I did feel that uh, Amy Poehler played a character that, that seemed to veer a little bit too close to her character on Parks and Recreation. Which I never watched. Certainly the, the idea that she would prepare this detailed, lavish itinerary and force everyone to try and adhere to it is, is like a joke that would be on Parks and Recreation. We should also mention that uh, Tina Fey also makes an appearance as a very unconvincing, gruff yeah. homeowner. That was a strange role for her to take. It was really strange. It was like, well, let's let's cast Tina Fey, but give her like a left field uh, yeah. thing to do, and it just really didn't did not work. nail. It just felt like Tina Fey putting on a stupid deep voice. It just felt, yeah, it was just, it was just not funny. And speaking of Prince, I did I did appreciate the fact that uh, Wendy and Lisa contribute to this film's score. Who? Wendy and Lisa of the Revolution, Prince's erstwhile backing band in the eighties. I can't. I can't really say that the uh, the score. Um, I can't remember anything about the score. I just like the fact that they were involved. You could have said that there was no score in the, in the movie at all. I would have believed you. I just like Wendy and Lisa. So, well, I mean, apparently not that much. Uh, I think the best thing I can say about the film Wine Country uh-huh. is that it kind of functioned as a pseudo sequel to Mystic Pizza, and I appreciated that. Uh. I do think this is superior to a lot of the bro comedies that you mentioned. Like, I'd much rather watch this again, like, the, than The Hangover, for instance. Yes, yes, agreed. Um, but that doesn't mean I thought it was good. It felt like a movie made for the people who wrote it, you know? Yeah, it feels like we're having a great time. The behind-the-scenes documentaries are probably really fun and stuff. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily translate to a good time at the Netflix movies. <laughs> Save they didn't release it in theaters. <laughs> Okay, let's done, finished. Done, finished. It is what it is. Uh, we're going to do the box office. We're going to extend this bloated episode even further. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. we got to do the box office. <laughs> we can box office. Okay, so uh, number 10, we have Long Shot, which is a film by Lionsgate slash S. I don't know what S stands for. Studio Canal. Uh, really? That's what it says on mine for long shot. Well, it might be a different distributor in Australia, uh, which made one million six hundred three dollars and fifty seven. No, sorry, one million six hundred three thousand and five hundred seventy six dollars, which is that uh, Charlie Theron getting Seth Rogen. getting Seth Rogen dick, the dream. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Speaking of bro comedies that, that we just talked about. Anyway, so what is, what is your number? Uh, number 10, their buddy. The number 10 in Australia is uh, Maklawa, uh-huh. which is a uh, Indian Punjabi romantic comedy. Hmm. And that grossed $120,520. Right. Number 9 is The Intruder by Screen Gems, which made uh, $2,300,000 and 968000 or sorry, $968. 
uh, which is that weird movie I described to you last week, which is like uh, a black family buys a house and the white owner who's it's like ancestral's home is like, yeah, it's my house. And the white guy's played by uh, Dennis Quaid. All right. Uh, what what is your number nine, bud, though? Uh, my number nine, or our number nine, is uh, 2040. Uh-huh. 136,769 gross. What was that film? I don't even know what it is. What's it called? 2040. It's a documentary. Award-ready director Damien, Damon Gamble embarks on a journey to explore what the future would look like by the year 2040 if we simply embrace the best solutions already available to us to improve our planet and shifted them into the mainstream. Structured as a visual Ooh. letter to his four-year-old daughter, Damon blends traditional documentary footage, the draw tie sequences, and high-end visual effects to create a vision board for his daughter and the planet. So it sounds exactly like uh, Sansa Wei. Sounds like uh, torture. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. That sounds great to me. Okay, what's next? All right, so that's 2040. What's number eight for you? Number eight for me is The Hustle, the gender-swapped remake of Dirty Rotten Scandals. Which made scandals, dirty rotten scoundrels, which made three million five hundred seventy-six thousand or five hundred seventy-nine thousand three hundred and twelve dollars. Number eight in Australia is the film Poms, mm. which uh, grossed one hundred thirty-nine thousand eight hundred twenty-four, featuring Australia's own Jackie Weaver. Which is why I made so much money, I assume. Uh, number seven is A Dog's Journey, uh, which made uh-huh. four million one hundred four thousand two hundred eighty-five dollars. Good coin. Zero cents, it seems. Number seven is Top End Wedding, uh, which I'll talk about as part of my bonus features segment. And it grossed 225180 Unfortunately, it has dropped a little bit, but I'm glad it's still in the top ten. Well, you know, movies drop from week to week. <laughs> Number six is a film called Booksmart, which is Olivia Wilde's directorial debut, which has grossed six million. Nine hundred and thirty-three thousand and six hundred and twenty dollars. You go. Okay, my number six is the aforementioned hustle, which has grossed. Yeah, I think it's just called, over I think half. It's the hustle. Just over half a million. <laughs> you didn't respond at all to that. No, it was an intentional omission. I don't think so. Of the. Uh, I don't think so, bud. Particle. So, um, my number five. Is a film called *Brightburn*, the evil Superman movie. Huh? What is *Brightburn*? I just told you the evil Superman movie. I don't know what that means. Uh, it was like a film that was produced by James Gunn and written by his brothers or some shit like that. Where it was like, what if Superman, instead of being a good guy, was a bad guy when he felt hurt? Right. So that seems like the the whole of it. Who directed it? So it wasn't James Gunn. No. I think his two brothers wrote it and some random other guy directed it. Did not seem that good, I must admit. Okay. Which grossed... Number... Ah, ah, sorry. Which grossed... Jump the gun. As it were. $7,845,658. Now, in Australia, mm-hmm. number five is a little film called... Mm-hmm. Brightburn. Ah, there you go. Uh, wow, synchronicity. No, Brightburn. <laughs> no, Brightburn? Yeah. Well, it's not synchronicity. That, <laughs> that fell off the movie. box of his charts years, <laughs> yeah, years ago. Years ago. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for, uh, 
recorded that up for me. Explaining my genius check. Uh, the weekend gross was $520,934. It'll be interesting to see um, if your top gross, what, like, what are the top 10 it, it, it tops, you know what I mean, in America? What are the what, what, what? How many of the films in my top 10 does your top grosser in Australia, like, beat in terms of how much money it made? Right. It's going to be interesting to see. Anyway, my number four, or America's number four, is Pokemon Detective Pikachu, which uh-huh. grossed $13,416,259. My number four is Avengers Endgame, which grossed uh, just over a mil. How much exactly did it gross? <laughs> One million. <laughs> so that's under the number 10 still. Hmm. Right, now, my number three is the uh, Avengers aforementioned in-game. Ah. Which grossed $17,200,742. My number three is the aforementioned Pokemon Detective Pikachu. Ah. Which grossed $1,187,747. Okay, that's still under the top, the number 10. Yes. So number one might slip into your top ten. Yeah, it might. But number two for us, for us, us, us Americans, us, us Yankees, is us. Is us? Yeah, it's come back. (laughs) Remember we talked about us. Yes. Great app. Yes. Is a film called Jean Vic Chapter Trois Parabellum, which grossed twenty four million five hundred and eighty seven thousand. $676. $676. Hmm. Jean-Vic. Meanwhile, in Australia, our number two is... What? No. John Wick, Chapter no. 3, Parabellum. No. No grossing $1,965,283. So that, that best long shot. Nailed it. Yeah, you did. Good job, Australia. Eat shit, Rogan. <laughs> I'm, I command you. Which one? Joe Rogan or... Seth Rogen. Joe Rogan. Okay. <laughs> you started Longshot, of course. All right. Let's, uh, okay, number one, Aladdin 2019. <laughs> Aladdin 2019. Just to make sure so you're not confused, it's the animated film with the same name. Which yes. grossed 91,500 and, oh, sorry, $91 million. Whoa, I was like, wow. 500,000. Pretty much. $929. Uh, Australia's number one, can you guess? Uh, John Wick 3. Like twice. Uh, Avengers Endgame. We've had that. Uh, Pokemon Detective Pikachu. We've had that too. Brightburn. We've had that also. Bookburn. Bookburn. Book <laughs> 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 movie I just admitted. Booksmart. No, it's what if, what if Superman was like a 15-year-old girl? <laughs> what if Superman were a book? Yeah. Um, uh, is it a dog's journey? In Australia? Is it a dog's journey? No. The hustle? No. The intruder? No. Long shot? No. Tumpo? No. The sun is also a star? No. Palms? No. Ugly toss? No. Biggest little farm? No. The Curse of Al Alanra? No. Captain Marvel? No. Breakthrough? No. The White Crow? No. Shazam? Uh, no. The Church. No. Amazing Grace 2019. No. Little. No. Tolkien. 
No. The souvenir. No. All is true. No. Photograph. No. Nonfiction. No. Echo in the Canyon. No. Red Joan. Red Joan. No. How to Train Your Dragon The Hidden World. No. India's Most Wanted. No. Us. No. Pet Cemetery, 2019. No. Missing Link. No. Penguins Disney Nature. No. Shadow. No. Hotel Mumbai. No. Meeting Gorbachev. No. Five Feet Apart. No. War and Peace 2019 re-release. No. Apollo 11. No. Unplanned. No. Hail Satan? No. The Tomorrow Man? No. Walking on Water? No. The Lumber Baron? No. Trial by Fire? No. Long Day's Journey into Night 2019? Uh, no. The Chaperone 2019? No. Wild Nights with Emily? No. Halston? No. The Third Wife? No. Ask Dr. Roof? No. The Proposal 2019? No. The Spy Behind Home Plate? No. Uh, Cat Video Fest 2019? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. No, not like, that one. Uh, what about Woodstock Three Days that Define a Generation? No. The Silence of Others? Uh-uh. Okay, what about After 2019? No. Okay, what about Rafiki? No. Okay, how about High Life? No. Okay, uh, Diamantino? No. Okay, uh, what about Be Natural, The Untold Story of Alice Guy Blosh? No, it's not that one. Okay, what about Woman at War? No. Okay, The River and the Wall? No. Okay, Heading Home, The Tale of Team Israel? No. Okay, what about Carmine Street Guitars? No. Okay, how about last year at Marion Bad 2019 re-release? No. That child, about... that's good. <laughs> yeah, number 69. <laughs> what about Robin Shop? Robin Shop? Yeah, Ramen. Ramen Shop. Oh, Ramen Shop. No, not that. What about Meanest Fan in Texas? No. Zila and Zoe? No. And Zoe? Yara. Yara? No. Shed of the Dead? No. What about My Son? No. How about Dogman? No. How about Transit? No. Okay, okay. But what about Working Woman? No. Okay, what about Faith, Hope, and Love? No. What about Phoenix, Oregon? No. The Russian Five? Uh-uh. Never Look Away? No. Babylon 2019 release? No. Hubble 3D? No. A Beautiful Planet? No. Capernaum? No. Born to be Wild IMAX? No. Okay, okay. That may be... What about High on the Hog? No. Okay. Franken-Ava? No. Uh, Iangar? Definitely not. Okay, what about Sunset 2019? No. How about The Sower? No. Okay, okay. Under the Sea 3D? Under the Sea 3D? Yeah. No. Okay, what about Lost and Found? No. Okay, what about Savage slash Wild? Savage slash wild. No. Okay, what about Galapagos uh, IMAX? No. Okay, okay. but he, this has got to be it. Hotel by the River. Mm, no. Okay, what about Three Faces? Uh, let me just check. No. Okay, what about Haga Zuza? No. Okay, okay. Deep Sea 3D? No way. 
Okay, well, what about the brink? Nearly, but no. Okay. Well, that's that's all the box office, so I have no idea what could possibly be. Uh, so number one in Australia uh-huh. is... Wait for it. Uh-huh. What? What could it possibly be? Number one in Australia is Aladdin 2019. Oh, I haven't heard of that one. Do you know the animated film that Disney made in the 90s with no. uh, Robin Williams as the genie? I can't say that I do. So initially he was cast in uh, that Fern Gully film, Wait, which uh, was an Australian-US co-production. And he was playing like a quirky bat. Okay. And uh, then Disney wanted to cast him as a genie, playing a very similar style character in a mm. film called Aladdin. And now they've recently remade that, but with Will Smith as the genie because Robin Williams is dead. Ah, okay. And it grossed right. $5 million uh, uh-huh. plus $259,368. Uh, okay, that's great. Uh, so, bonus features. Bonus features. Bonus. Bonus features. Bonus features. Bonus. Bonus features. Go! Okay, let's see. I watched Igmar Bergman's Dreams, which is a uh, decent enough little film. It has this weird bifurcated structure, which is... Oh, it's a film. You one, didn't actually watch his story. dreams. One story uh, is interesting. One story is kind of not. And it ends kind of badly. I watched Jean-Vic Chapter Toi, Parabellum, which is another one of the Jean-Luc movies. It's just more of the same. Which one? The third one. Uh, okay. It has a good opening, good ending, but the middle part's a little, little soggy, I think. But it's good, nonetheless. Okay. I watched... Le Capitaine America, or I guess Le Capitaine Amérique, Le Soldats d'Hiver, uh, or Captain America, the Winter Soldier, to my non-French-speaking audience. Um, Wouldn't it be like American or something? I don't know. I don't understand how French works. Okay. Uh, which is a Marvel movie. We've talked about those at length, so I won't get into it. I watched a short documentary called Images from the Playground, which is comprised of home movie and behind-the-scenes footage that Igmar Bergman shot. Igmar Birdman. Uh, <laughs> Igmar. He does Birdman. have a hawk like nose. Igmar Birdman uh, shot uh, behind the scenes of his films, uh, overlaced with uh, 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 interviews interviews with him and Harry Anderson and BB Anderson. Uh, it's very interesting. There's a great scene where he's like, I hate the open sky because it makes you feel like the world's ending. Mm-hmm. I recommend it. It's good. It's a little, you know, it's a little thin, but it's it's interesting to see the footage and then lining what he says up with the actual footage and what Harriet and BB say as well. Um, Maybe more instructive as a bonus feature in a Criterion uh, DVD watched... than a discrete piece of work, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. For example, uh, I watched Demon Lover, which is Olivier Assayas's, uh techno thriller, uh, which I quite loved. Uh, just a weird movie about two companies competing for a hentai contract. So, if that sounds up your alley, then you should watch it. I watched Bye Bye Love, The Aunts, and The Orchid, which are all which are three films. Bye Bye shut, shut up. I did that last time. You did. Uh, which are three films sort of uh, made under the creative auspices of a science fiction writer named Samuel Delaney, who's a sci-fi writer I quite like. Uh-huh. Uh, he's a special presentation. None of them are that interesting, uh, but they're kind of worth watching if you like him. The writer that is, which you don't, you hate him. I do like him. Uh, oh, okay. And it was kind of fun going to this event and hearing him give these like weird stories in his old coot voice. Uh, so that was. Can you do an impression, please? <laughs> uh, I can't. I can't anymore. I, I was able to do it on the day of, but I can't anymore. 
Is it like I, my I southern grandpa him. voice? No, uh, he's, he's from he's from Harlem, so. Okay. I'm Samuel Delaney. No, uh, that's not even good at all. I'm just going to do it. Okay. So like so, a New York. Shut up. I watched, New York. Uh, shut up. I watched Summer with Monica, uh, which mm-hmm. is Mark Bergman, sort of is one of his breakthrough films. Did she enjoy it as well? Huh? Did she enjoy it as well? It's a good film. Um, okay. You know, uh, it has this great shot. Uh, Harry and Anderson's really spectacular, and it has a great shot of her just looking into the camera uh, intentionally, which is uh, good. It's a good balance. That sounds like a mistake. Portrait. No, it's, it's intentional. Um, huh. And I, I like that the film sort of, you know, you feel Bergman's sympathy towards her character more so than the, the male guy who is stuck with the children and the... Uh, the boring wife at the end of the movie. Spoilers, I guess. So you could almost say it's feminist. Uh, I would not go that far. But... <laughs> uh, definitely is... Uh, seems to prioritize. Even though it is... it's The story seems to be framed around the male point of view. It seems to have more sympathy for Monica as a character than it does for the man. You know? mm. um, but it is still told through his perspective. By and large. Except for some scenes that cut away from him. Like that scene I just talked about. Uh, I watch, and then finally I watched this movie called Home, which is the animated film, which is pretty wretched. It had a terrible soundtrack. So there you go. That's it. How was Jim Parsons? He was, was amazing. <laughs> yeah, good. Uh, what did you watch? Do it quick. Come on. Uh, I contributed to the box office earnings of the aforementioned Top End Wedding. I should stop saying aforementioned, uh, which is a romantic comedy. And as much as I love romantic comedies... I think we can both agree they're usually too conservative and white, or yeah. certainly they've historically been. And I'm certainly glad we're getting more uh, romantic comedies that offer different perspectives. And I actually think Australia's uh, own Top End Wedding is one of the more significant examples of this. Mm. So this is an Indigenous Australian story, not just because it was directed by Wayne Blair and it co-stars Miranda Tapsell, who also co-wrote the screenplay, Um, but because of the story it tells. So it it follows the romantic comedy conventions and hits all the expected beats, although as with crazy rich Asians, they've again deprived me of a meet-cute because the the story begins um, with our central couple already in a committed relationship. Uh Um, But instead of centralising the wedding of the title as the culmination of this narrative, the real story is our protagonist, Lauren, played by Miranda Tapsell, reconnecting with her Indigenous family in the Tiwi Islands. And that's really the story at the centre of this film. Um, It's not perfect, and I think the film does run out of steam by the time the wedding actually happens, but I think it is funny, I think it is moving, and it has one of the better examples of the fight-and-make-up rom-com, you know, second or third act trope. It felt uh, earned. And Miranda Tapsell is excellent, and I hope this leads to more romantic comedies like this. I also watched uh, King Who's Come Drink With Me from 1966, which was the big breakout success that he made with Shaw Brothers, which made a star of its star, Cheng Pei Pei, and uh, preceded his move to Taiwan to to help start up uh, his own studio. And in many ways, it feels like a dry run for Dragon Inn, the film that he made in Taiwan, and it even features near-identical inn-based set pieces. Um, but I think it's nonetheless enjoyable, and I think King Hu exhibits a commanding sense of craft, even at this early stage. And I like the fact that he deliberately pushes the action sequences more in the direction of dance, um, utilising Cheng Pei Pei's ballet background to great effect. 
Um, though I do think that uh, he was to go on to do uh, much better fight scenes in his subsequent films. I also watched uh, Steven Spielberg's Catch Me If You Can. thought it was quite disappointing. Um, I found the material and characterization quite thin and uh, to the extent where none of the dramatic gestures came off very convincingly. I think the fact that it goes, it tries to go for something a little bit deeper than uh, some of Spielberg's more purely genre-based efforts like Jurassic Park saps the film of a charm it might otherwise have managed. And I do want to say this again, I'm doing it, I'm going to go on this again very quickly, but I have realised something I've always suspected, which is that Leonardo DiCaprio is a, is a really terrible actor and I hate him. And he's that worst kind of dreadful actor, which is the sweaty dreadful actor. An actor he, he can watch actively try. He can't walk into a room without signalling the fact that he's acting. His face seems to scream at you, look how hard I'm acting all the fucking time. And I find it really distracting and off-putting. And that's why, that's why his best role is The Wolf of Wall Street. That's why his best role, I think, is uh, in Romeo and Juliet. Because I think that sweaty intensity worked in favour when he was younger. And especially playing an uh, earnest, uh, lovelorn teenager. I think it kind of works for that character. But I think as he aged, that sweatiness did not recede and became a disgusting pallor over all the films he appears in. I like uh, DiCaprio, so I don't know what to say. And if we're going to compare bad actors... Yeah, just hurry up. There's the Keanu Reeves school, which is pure incompetence. And there's the DiCaprio school, which is not incompetence, but I can tell you wrote this sweatily down. <laughs> unconvincing. I, can, I, can tell no, you I didn't. Wrote, I don't believe that. No, no. The start of it is, but the bit I'm doing now is off the cuff. Okay, okay. Um, and the Keanu Reeves school, I find uh, more appealing than the DiCaprio school. If we're going to talk bad actors, I also watched the we're film. We're not doing that though. We're Hot Rod. Uh, Hot Rod. That's Hot Rod. Uh, which is that uh, Lonely Island project, SNL project. Yes. Originally, it was uh, intended as a Will Ferrell vehicle. Wow, that's weird. And then it was retooled by the Lonely Island alum. Um, and then the direction by one of the Lonely Islanders, whatever the name is, is mostly Steve, as uh, prosaic Schaefer. as you'd expect. Uh, yes. Um, so the, the, though his direction is mostly as prosaic as you expect from this type of film, I was actually surprised and impressed by how the stunt sequences were staged. Um, it looked like most of what they were doing was with clever practical effects and presumably actual stunt work, and it achieved a really nice visual weight which sells the gag, especially when the stunt fails as it mostly does throughout the film. So I was surprised that enough of the jokes land that I, I, I rate this above things like Talladega Nights and other Will Ferrell films. Yeah, I think it's and real. I must credit its exemplary use of uh, John Farnham's You're the Voice, which we are both fans of. Okay, finish, finish your stupid film thing. Only two more. Okay. Uh, I then watched the uh, documentary Jim and Andy, which has a subtitle that escapes me. The Great Beyond. Yes, that's the one. And uh, that's the story of uh, Jim Carrey's uh, attempts to capture the spirit of Andy Kaufman uh -huh. while playing Andy Kaufman in the film, the Milos Forman film, Man on the Moon. Uh -huh. 
Um, so this this captures the zany backstage antics of Jim Carrey, who doggedly persisted in remaining in character on set, much to the annoyance of uh, most everybody around him. And uh, honestly, it feels less like a homage to Kaufman's spirit, what he's doing, and more like desperation. Um, and at points, it is genuinely embarrassing, and you're just like, just fucking, just act, for Christ's sake. And uh, there's a really awkward moments in which he kind of uh, consoles members of Andy Kaufman's family, including his estranged daughter in character as Andy Kaufman. It just feels off. Yeah, it doesn't sound great. Okay, what's the last one? But kind of interesting to watch as a documentary, I guess, but not an amazing documentary. But if you're interested, worth watching. Last time I watched was another King Who film, the film we made after uh, Dragon Inn, the celebrated A Touch of Zen. Mm-hmm. This is essentially ground zero for the art house martial arts film genre. And it's, I think it's a sublime film that I'd recommend without hesitation. Okay, I'll watch it. King Who made this while he was still in Taiwan. Um, but the film industry in Taiwan was, was pretty meager and uh, he didn't have a lot of experienced crew to work with, so he essentially ended up doing everything himself, down to designing the costumes and physically constructing the sets along with some of the other actors that he worked with. And the central set is this dilapidated temple, and it's one of the best uh, film sets that I've seen. It's just this lovely image uh, that it creates in the film. Um, I recommend it just on the basis of that, but the film happens to be great around it as well. Okay. Uh, it's three hours, and I honestly wouldn't have objected to an extra hour. Wow. Uh, it's it. probably most famous for its Central Bamboo Forest Showdown, which uh, Ang Lee paid tribute to in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, albeit somewhat poorly. Okay. Is that it? That's it. Okay. Well, uh, see you next time, buddy, when we, when we do Rocket Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>